You're listening to a podcast from EMJ. Professor Steele, thank you very much for agreeing to speak to the readership of the EMJ. Oh, my pleasure. I'm very happy to have this chance to talk. To start with, uh, what I wanted to talk about first was implementation of decision rules, really. Uh, of course, Ottawa and, and your department here in particular is very famous for the ankle rules, the knee rules, the Canadian C-spine rules. Do you have any great trade secret as to, to worldwide implementation? And if so, can you share it with the readership, please? Well, I have a suspicion of why these have, have worked out. I think um, maybe we, we were among the first to address what are really common everyday uh, issues in the ED, you know, uh, ankle sprains and the clear uh, C-spine. So we, we took on uh, common problems and we tried to address it in a really rigorous way so that the decision rules would be very robust and probably the biggest secret was large numbers of patients at multiple sites. So, you know, the C-spine study uh, phase one had 8,000 at uh, multiple hospitals across Canada, and the validation, again, uh, over 8,000 patients at 10-some-odd hospitals. So uh, very, very large numbers, I think, would help the robustness of the rules, so they actually work. Mm-hmm. And do you think international recruitment is, is key to this, really, recruiting patients across different countries to increase the generalizability of the rules? Well, we don't do that so much. Uh, so take the, uh, the humble Ottawa ankle rule that was developed about 20 years ago. Um, that was done in, in Canada, uh, but subsequently uh, a meta-analysis that was published a few years back uh, showed more than 30 studies had been done around uh, the world. So lots of folks in different countries had uh, validated those rules uh, in their own area. In, in most, almost all cases, uh, the validation was very successful. Mm-hmm. And I think for implementation, that's helpful because somehow doctors often feel their own patients are different from those elsewhere. And they feel comforted, I think, when the results have been reproduced in their own country. I noticed that there's been a, a survey published recently about physician attitudes and perceptions towards a, a possible decision rule in respiratory failure. Is that something your group's working on and do you think that's going to be the next big decision rule from Ottawa? <laughs> well, we're working on lots of stuff here. I mean, my colleagues uh, Jeff Perry is working on a, a stroke rule as well as a subarachnoid rule mm-hmm. and Dr. Venkatesh is working on a syncope rule. Mm-hmm. Uh, my particular projects have been uh, uh, a heart failure rule as well as a COPD rule. In both cases, those are to try to estimate the risk of a serious adverse event occurring in the next two weeks for these patients to guide us, give us some information in deciding uh, whether to admit the patient or to arrange very close uh, follow-up. Because right now, a lot of those decisions are just made based on a, a, a guesstimate. Do you see those rules just reducing hospital admissions or treating in the community or doing a variety well, of things? I, I, what What's happening in Canada is we have a relatively low rate of admission. It's less than 40% for heart failure and COPD exacerbations, whereas our colleagues in the U.S. have a very high admission rate, probably 90%. And uh, evidence I've seen shows that in neither case are uh, the patients necessarily better off. Um, In Canada, we are restrictive, but we're sending home some of the wrong patients, and at the same time, we're probably admitting some patients that don't really need to be admitted. So uh, we see this risk stratification as an additional tool to help uh, clinicians decide uh, what is 
best for an individual patient. Just just on that topic in particular, I mean, atrial fibrillation is something that's very differently practiced the world over, and, and some people have very strict admission policies yeah. about it. I know you've done a lot of work on this recently, and, and do you think that as emergency physicians we should be pursuing a more aggressive strategy in terms of DC or, or pharmacological? Oh, absolutely. I think the emergency physicians should be aggressive, and I think they should take on uh, this topic as, as one of their own conditions. So uh, we're, we're calling them RAF patients, recent onset atrial fibrillation or flutter. And we've published a fair bit in the last couple of years looking at success, say, in the Ottawa area uh, of a protocol that usually sees our patients going home from the ED within four or five hours and restored back to normal sinus rhythm with very good uh, outcomes. And um, alternately, I know in the U.S., they still seem to admit most patients with uh, atrial fibrillation and usually are very reluctant to attempt a a chemical or electrical cardioversion. Mm -hmm. Uh, What we do in Ottawa, for the most part, is that we uh, first try uh, a a chemical cardioversion with uh, procainamide infusion over an hour, and if that doesn't work, then we will offer uh, electrical cardioversion. Patients almost always want that. Mm-hmm. So um, uh, we provide the uh, sedation ourselves, usually using uh, fentanyl and propofol, and we do the cardioversion ourselves, and then the patient goes home. Yeah. Uh, the, the only important component of that is, is the follow-up. So if they're first time ever, they'll need an echocardiogram and probably should see a cardiologist uh, at least once. But they have that as an outpatient, presumably. That's right, yeah. So rarely do they see cardiology uh, uh, in, in the ED, and, uh, and only uh, at most 5% of patients would require uh, admission, that being if they are in severe heart failure or uh, had um, ACS associated with a rapid heart rate mm-hmm. and elevated troponins. Okay. Do you consider thromboprophylaxis for this group at any stage? Or? Yes, we do. And I think we've been a little um, uh, lazy fair in the past, but we're now teaching ourselves uh, what exactly CHADS2 score is, so we're aware of it. Okay. Um, there's no clear guidelines for emergency patients. When we cardiovert, we generally do not provide any uh, thromboembolic prophylaxis, so we don't use heparin. Mm-hmm. We don't necessarily give them uh, Coumadin if we get them back to science rhythm. Yeah. Okay. But if they're repeat patients and they're in frequently and they have a, uh, an elevated CHAD score, an elevated means one or higher, the Canadian guidelines are that they, they should be considered for oral anticoagulation yeah. on a long-term basis. And we'd probably prefer their own physician make that decision. But we need to start the dialogue so that that important factor is not overlooked. Okay. Do you um, ever consider pharmacological therapy to go home with, so something that's designed to keep them in sinus rhythm after the original no, cardiac... No, no. So if we've converted them back to sinus, we don't send them home on any antiarrhythmics. Right. Uh, and they'll follow up with the cardiologist. And we've noticed that most of the time the cardiologists don't use uh, antiarrhythmics either because they're not that effective or, or they're not that safe. Alternately, if we can't convert them or it's not safe because they're more than 48 hours, then in that case we'd have to send them home on... Uh, oral anticoagulants and a beta blocker or a calcium channel blocker to try and keep their heart rate down. Yeah, but it's much more satisfying, presumably, to get rate contr- sorry to get a cardioversion in the Oh, absolutely, department. because we can return them back to their normal status within hours, mm-hmm. and uh, the patients 
you know, come to expect that now. So they, they would be quite miffed if we didn't offer a cardioversion. I suppose just one last question on this topic that some people would suggest that a proportion of those patients will spontaneously cardiovert anyway, if, if given enough time. And Right. So we've heard that argument and a few hospitals in Canada will send the patient home and tell them to come back the next morning. Okay. Uh, whereas we think, oh, that's just delaying what they need. So we treat them immediately and then they're restored to sinus rhythm immediately. And they're uh, on average leaving our departments uh, four to five hours after arrival and they don't need to come back. Okay. If we just move away from AF for a second then, I suppose the next thing I wanted to just discuss briefly is this idea of of gestalt and clinical decision rules and incorporating the physician's own perceptions. I know some people can be a little critical of that because, of course, it's a, quite a subjective judgment, and so it's going to vary, which which takes it away from what some people would suggest a clinical decision rule is supposed to do, which is give you a very clear, objective tool to decide whether people even need investigational treatment. I wonder if you, if you had any thoughts on the use of Gestalt in clinical decision rules, whether it's something that your group utilise or not. Our, our group, as far as I can tell, don't use a subjective component uh, at all, so the the rules you mentioned and, and that I mentioned are hard uh, clinical findings from the history physical or maybe simple bedside tests but we don't ask the doctor to then factor in his own kind of probability because it actually probably defeats the whole purpose because we know already physicians have a strong bias to order or not order imaging and probably they're just going to invoke what they want to do we don't have that as a component of uh, of our rules, and in fact, we've avoided any criteria that we don't think are very reliable. Meaning that two two different doctors might interpret the same finding differently. And, and for example, in the C-spine rule, we evaluated uh, distracting painful injuries, and we found that that was not reliable. That no two doctors ever agreed on what that was. So we didn't incorporate that uh, uh, into our rules. And that's just one of many examples of mm-hmm. sort of subjective sense that doesn't really help. And if, I suppose if you take away any subjective questioning, then there is an argument that decision rules become tick box medicine, isn't there? That, that you're asking yes or no questions and then you're spitting out an answer at the end. What do you have to say to that argument? These are tools to help, especially for the inexperienced doctor. Uh, for example, when I, we developed the Ottawa ankle rule, I'd been in practice for 10 years and I knew perfectly well whether the patient had a fracture or not, but I didn't, I wasn't easy for me to understand how I knew or how to teach that to the the residents or the younger doctors. You know, so we're kind of uh, identifying the key factors that will help you with that decision, basically. Now, um, when it comes to imaging, our our approach has been basically yes or no. But lots of other things, such as the risk of adverse events for heart failure, COPD, uh, syncope patients... um, TIA patients, we can't give a yes or no. We can estimate the risk of a bad outcome. And then the clinician has to take that information and decide uh, what else is going on with the patient and the resources available and then apply that information to making a decision. So the last question I wanted to talk about really was um, the recent work that's been done by the Rock Investigators about depth of cardiac compression. And I just wondered if you had any thoughts on exactly how deep and how fast we should be going when it comes to cardiac compressions. No, that's a great question because um, whereas we recently published a small series of 1,000 patients looking at optimal depth, we have just 
finished a much larger analysis of close to 10,000 patients from the recent ROC uh, prime trials that we published last year. So we have a huge data set of patients with compression depth information and uh, we've analyzed that carefully. It's not yet been published, but uh, what we have found is that, first of all, uh, pre-hospital providers are not uh, pressing deeply enough, that mm -hmm. the, um, the depth is very much inadequate in many cases. But at the same time, we found that the optimal depth is closer to uh, 45 millimeters and actually falls off by the time you hit... Uh, 50 millimeters or 5 centimeters and the current guidelines 2010 guidelines imply that the depth should exceed uh, 5 uh, centimeters in all cases with no particular upper uh, limit specified so our impression is that that advice uh, is a bit misguided mm -hmm. that for sure providers uh, in or out of hospital have to push more deeply but there is an upper limit and the upper limit may in fact be uh, close to 5 centimeters. Mm -hmm but it probably should not exceed five centimeters if you want to optimize survival for patients. So we hope to be presenting that at the American Heart meeting in the near future and then publish it. And how do you think you know, emergency physicians can best monitor this? I mean, a five centimeter depth is you know, a tricky thing to achieve in some people. What kind of devices or, or do you think we just... Oh, well, in the pre-hospital arena, um, many of the defibrillators come with uh, these little... Uh, accelerometer pucks that go right on the middle of the sternum. So they're getting instant feedback, you okay. know, compression by compression on how they're doing in terms of uh, rate, uh, depth, and release. Mm -hmm. uh, so uh, in an ideal setting, you'd have the same technology in the hospital. Yeah. So you would know exactly how deep you're uh, pressing, which I, I, I agree, otherwise very hard to judge. And if you're, like, supervising a more junior a uh, doctor, um, that's hard to tell. Yeah. Uh, I often see that uh, younger folks pre uh, go way too fast yeah, yeah. out of the excitement. And, and again, you know, the optimal rates felt to be around 100, mm -hmm. uh, it may be a little more or less. So having instant feedback from uh, uh, the defibrillator device is very, uh, very helpful. Do you see that? kind of strategy of five centimeters being built into advanced life support algorithms over the next five to ten years? I, I do, yes. I mean, there's no randomized trials uh, on optimal depth, and the current guidelines, again, have come from relatively small observational studies, uh, you know, that certainly suggested the current depth is inadequate. So I think the guidelines were an attempt to encourage everybody to press more deeply, which is good. But now we're getting a better sense of the upper limit of that. So I think um, uh, uh, perhaps once this much larger study uh, is published, that that will likely influence guidelines. Professor Steele, thank you very much for speaking to the EMG readership today. It's, it's been a great pleasure and it's very nice to meet you. Oh, my pleasure also. Thank you. For more information about this program and other BMJ Group podcasts, please visit bmj.com.